This week is Parsha Hukat. I'd like to talk a little bit about the rock, of course, and ponder Moshe's sin and what we may learn from it. So let's talk about that rock. Israelite history of the rock really begins a couple books back. Back in Parsha uh, Beshalak, Shemot, Exodus chapter 17. That's where we're going to begin because this is kind of where this all kind of begins. Exodus chapter 17. It's on page 79 of these uh, Stearns. Or if you have another version of Scripture, you're going to have to find Exodus chapter 17. I could have gotten here before this. Exodus 17, I'm going to start in verse 1. <clears throat> Exodus 17:1. A whole community of the people of Israel left the Seen Desert, traveling in stages, as Adonai had ordered, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moshe, demanding, Give us water to drink. But Moshe replied, why pick a fight with me? Why are you testing Adonai? However, the people were thirsty. For water there, um, for water there, and grumbled against Moshe. For what did you bring us up from Egypt? To kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Moshe cried out to Adonai, What am I to do with these people? They're uh, ready to stone me. Adonai answered Moshe, go ahead of the people and bring with you the leaders of Israel. Take your staff in your hand, the one you used to uh, strike the river, and go. I will stand in front of you there on the rock in Horeb. You are to strike the rock, and water will come out of it so the people can drink. Moshe did this in the sight of the leaders of Israel. The place was named Massah and Merivah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Adonai by asking, is Adonai with us or not? So this is kind of uh, the first time we kind of get water coming from a rock here, obviously. The people are complaining, which is a uh, popular hobby that they have. They tend to do this all the time. Moshe cries out to Adonai, and Adonai has him strike the rock, producing water. Okay? So that gets us to today's Torah portion, which is about 100 pages over, page 172, or Bamidbar, chapter 20, Numbers chapter 20. That's on page 172. I'm just going to read a little bit of that. Numbers chapter 20. The first verse, um, the people of Israel, the whole community entered the Zin Desert um, in the first month, and they stayed in Kadesh. There Miriam died, and there she was buried. So we'll pause there for a second. Miriam has passed away. This is 40 years later than what we just read in the book of Exodus. 40 years has gone by. And so not only has Miriam passed away, but most of the people of that generation are beginning to pass away or are not there. And so um, what we're going to read here about people complaining again is these are all the kids that were 20 and under back in Exodus. 
40 years has gone by. Now they're the grown adults. They're the next generation getting ready to take over. They're going to be the generation getting ready to go into the promised land. And so this is 40 years later. It's a whole new generation. The kids are now adults. Verse 2, because the community had no water, they assembled themselves against Moshe and Aharon. The people quarreled with Moshe and said, wish we had uh, died when our brothers, wish we had died when our brothers died before Adonai. Why did you bring Adonai's community into the desert to die there, we and our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt to bring us into this terrible place without seed and figs and grapevines or pomegranates or even water to drink? Moshe and Aharon left the assembly and went to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces and the glory of Adonai appeared to them. Adonai said to Moshe, take the staff and assemble the community, you and Aharon, your brother, and before their eyes, tell the rock to produce its water and you will bring um, bring them water out of the rock and thus enable the community and the livestock to drink. So Moshe took the staff from the presence of Adonai as he had ordered him. But after Moshe and Aharon had assembled the community in front of the rock, he said to them, Listen here, you rebels, are we supposed to bring you water from this rock? Then Moshe raised his hand, hit the rock twice with his staff, and water flowed out in abundance, and the community and their livestock drank. But Adonai said to Moshe and Aharon, because you did not trust in me so as to cause me to be regarded as holy by the people of Israel, you will not uh, bring this community into the land I am giving them. Sounds kind of like a little bit of a, a really harsh punishment there. But like I said, this is the next generation. These are the kids, the next generation. And it seems like this generation has learned a lot from their parents which is why good parenting is really important because it matters. I guess, in a sense, that means bad parenting matters too, but for bad reasons. But yes, good parenting, because the kids are going to, if you want them to be well-developed, normal kids, you're going to have to parent them well. And so these kids grew up listening to their parents sit around the dinner table, mom and dad, reminiscing about how great it was in Egypt, complaining about how dry the air is there, there's no fish, right? Um, lots of complaining that they grew up with. Because when we read through the Torah, the people complain a whole lot. They weren't happy about life, and they were constantly finding something to grumble and complain about, right? It was easy times back in Egypt. They keep saying that, even though they were slaves. It was so much better back there. And so they grew up hearing this. And so now, at this point, it's almost like it pushes Moshe over the edge a little bit. So let's talk about a sin. Last verse there we find out, Moshe finds out he's not going into the promised land. Why? Because he did not trust in Adonai. That's in verse 12. Now what particular exact uh, sin that he committed that me would mean he didn't trust in Adonai is not very spelled out. But it has to be something significant. The nature of exactly what they did to elicit that response of not trusting just isn't explained. We are left to guess a little bit. I mean, the text does not say 
since you hit the rock, instead of speaking to it, you're not going into the land. Then it'd be pretty easy, it's black and white, to say, well, you hit the rock. And that's what most people would say, because he hit the rock. But he hits it twice. Maybe it was the second hit that was the sin, and not the first one. God didn't tell him not to hit the rock. So there's all kinds of uh, vagueness here about what exactly the sin could be. Um, The sages have all kinds of different possibilities, of course. Perhaps he didn't sing a song of praise as the water came forth, and he didn't give Adonai credit for it. Okay. Uh, Perhaps he was supposed to speak to the rock, which meant reciting Torah next to the rock. I love the imagery of that as if he has a kumash. He's supposed to read Torah to it. As a matter of fact, there's a great midrash about this. Um, Midrash is just a, uh, comes from the word drash, which means seeking out. It's sort of like creative storytelling, sort of a way to kind of fill in some vagueness or some gaps. Helps us to like illuminate different Bible passages and helps us to um, sort of visualize things that are going on. Um, sometimes this means adding into the story things that aren't in the Bible, which is something we're all pretty familiar with anyways. I mean, think of if you had wanted to paint a picture of Eve in the garden, what would you do? You'd paint a picture of Eve. You'd have some foliage that kind of covered sensitive areas. You'd have a little serpent on the ground, and I have her reaching up, grabbing a what out of the tree? An apple. Well, there's no apple in Genesis chapter 3. It just says Paris, it says fruit. And so it could be a pear. I mean, I guess logically, biblically, you'd think it'd be like a fig. But it just says fruit, that's all it says. Well, everyone kind of grows up seeing pictures of this, and it's an apple. They're adding a little bit to the story just to, so we can form a picture, because Paris, fruit, is a little bit vague. It's nice to be able to have something to really visualize. And there's vagueness in several parts of Scripture that get added to. Uh, you want to write a children's book about the prophet Jonah. You're going to have Jonah being swallowed up by a whale. It's been Jonah in the whale for as long as I can remember. Well, the Hebrew just says a big fish. It doesn't say whale. But you kind of embellish on it a little bit so you can have a, a nice story and something visual for the children to, to kind of get into. And it's everywhere. There's such thing as uh, like the three wise men. If you read... Um, Matthew chapter 2, and the story of uh, baby Yeshua being born, um, there are three gifts that are presented, but it just says magi, and it uses the word they, so we know there's more than one of them, but it actually doesn't say there's three wise men, but if you want to create a nativity scene, of course, you're going to have three little wise men there, because that's kind of what songs are sung about and all this other stuff, and people just sort of assume you know, there was three wise men when it, the text doesn't say that. So Midrash, and just as a way of sort of adding to uh, the vague, you know, trying to clean up the vagueness of it. And these, the sages and the rabbis will develop little stories that are almost like parables to teach us something or just to help color it in and give us an idea of what might have happened. And so there's Midrash about this, and it's pretty interesting. Um, so the people are complaining. They want water. God tells them, go speak to the rock. So what Moshe does is he goes and gets some buddies, and his plan is he's going to have a little Torah study next to the rock. He's going to sit next to the rock with his friends. They're going to speak words of Torah, and then water's going to come bursting forth from the rock. And when the people see that, they'll say, oh, Torah, just Torah and Torah study, the value of that 
produces miracles and water, and people will see the value of the Torah and the water. So he's got a really good plan. But the people started to complain. Um, the heads of different clans began to take up their own rock and demand that Moshe produce water from their rock. And he becomes very disturbed. Everyone's complaining. They're negative. The atmosphere isn't conducive for Torah study. So he becomes very angry and says, fine. And he yells at the rock to produce water. Nothing happens. So he hits the, rotter, hits the rock with a stick, and blood comes out. People start saying, what are we supposed to do, drink this blood? Mocking him. So he hits the rock again with a stick, and water finally comes out. Interesting, the uh, blood and water imagery there in, the thing, in that. But the end of the Midrash points out, and this is the whole point of the story, was Moshe's anger was his sin. It was his anger. It wasn't not speaking to the rock or speaking to the rock or hitting it or not hitting it. The, at least that particular sage, his point was that um, he was angry. And there's all kinds of different reasons. Maybe Moshe chose the wrong, wrong rock. I don't know. But it could have been because he had anger towards the people, and he seems to blame them for this episode. Um, turn forward a few pages to page 197. You're almost there. Devarim, or Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're going to read here that Moshe still harbors a little bit of resentment towards the people for this whole episode. He's still angry, um, angry about this. Devarim chapter 1, verse 34. Oh, where is it? Um, boy, it's hard to read this. 34. Adonai heard what you were saying and became angry and swore. Not a single one of these people, this whole generation, will see the good land I swore to give to your ancestors, except Caleb, the son of Yufni. Um, he will see it. They're talking about the spies, the, the story of the spies here, of course. And I'll give him and his descendants the land he walked on because he has fully followed Adonai. Also because of your, also because of you, Adonai was angry with me and said, you too will not go in there. That's a reference to um, today's Parsha. Notice how Moshe puts that. Because of you, Moshe's sort of putting the blame on the people here. He's saying, it's your fault Adonai is mad at me, and it's your fault I can't go into the land. Moshe seems to be holding a little bit of a grudge here. He's blaming them for not being able to go into the land. And we can certainly sympathize a little bit with Moshe here. I mean, the people were angry at him a whole lot. He's doing a lot to try to lead them, a job he didn't even want anyways. And now because of them, he can't get into the land. But you just can't really justify your situation all the time by blaming other people. So one of the sources of Moshe's sin that I think makes the most sense, or a lot of sense, is that he sort of succumbed to the sin of the people, complaining, grumbling, something the people always did, and God was constantly ready to smite the whole nation over, was something that Moshe finally succumbed to. Perhaps it was because a second generation come up and he thought to himself, are you kidding me? The next generation is going to do this to me now? And he sort of lost his temper a little bit. But the uh, complaining and blaming other people and grumbling seems to be something that um, 
was something that affected him. And so I think this might be the source of why Adonai didn't allow him into the land. Seems like a bit of uh, unequal weights and measures. I mean, over one incident, he can't go into the land. It seems kind of severe. But great siddiqs, right? Righteous people sometimes are held to a bit of a higher standard. So what can we learn from this? Well, when it comes to complaining about stuff and grumbling about stuff, not much has changed in the several thousand years since this week's Torah portion. People today, of course, myself included, have a tendency to complain and blame each other for all kinds of stuff. Uh, probably the number one target for us is the government. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, there's plenty of politicians for us to be irritated with and complain and grumble about. Or my boss is uh, ignoring all the great work I'm doing and we're complaining about the boss or a coworker or a teacher or um, my husband doesn't pick up his dirty clothes after he takes a shower and just leaves them laying there. Uh, it's a bit of a... There's all kinds of grumbling that goes on. Certainly people do things to us that are not right. I'm not saying that we should be uh, emotionless, sort of punching bags that, you know don't feel anger or um, frustration. But our situation, our life experience that we have, it shouldn't be dictated on the actions of others. It should be um, dictated on our response to it, right? It's not what happens to you that counts. It's how you handle it. We want to hold ourselves to a higher standard. This means handling anger and frustration differently than the world generally does. And it's not always easy. Life is going to test us in many varied ways. We're going to uh, suffer, but how we respond is up to us. The book of James, uh, James uh, chapter 1, verse 2, reminds us to consider it all joy. We have to consider it joy when we encounter suffering or various trials because it builds endurance, right? It builds um, the testing and endurance that we need to be uh, lacking in nothing. Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, he tells us in Romans 5.3, <clears throat> not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. We have to, to somehow we glory in our sufferings. It's hard to find joy and glory when you're very angry and irritated, but if you can persevere through that, he tells us there's glory in that because suffering produces perseverance, which leads to character and hope and all kinds of good things. Speaking of Rav Shaul, he too weighs in on the rock. Um, we'll close down with uh, this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Rav Shaul is going to weigh in on this rock here in this week's Torah portion. It's on page 1431 or 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Rav Shaul seems to kind of pick up on a common midrash. So the uh, sages for a long time, thousands of years, have done a little bit of midrash, talking about stuff. And a very ancient and common one was that the sages talk about a rock that followed them from the first incident in Exodus chapter 17. They're saying that rock at Horeb followed them all around the desert and provided water for them. 
and stopped providing water when Miriam died. And so that's a, that's a, that's a, a legend, if you'd call it, that goes back a long, long time. And it appears here that um, Rav Shaul sort of picks up on this a little bit. We'll see what he does with it. Um, chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Four brothers, I don't want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers. All of them were guided by the pillar of the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and the sea, they will all immerse themselves into Moshe. That alone is a very interesting point. They immerse themselves not into Adonai and not into Yeshua, but into Moshe. Talk about that at a different time. Anyways, continuing on. Also, they all ate the same food from the same spirit, and they all drank the same drink from the spirit, for they drank from a spirit-sent rock which followed them, and that rock was the Messiah. Get the majority of them with them. God was not pleased, and their bodies were strewn in the desert. So what Rav Shaul is doing here is he's sort of making a midrash. He's sort of putting a new spin on a story that it would get, already gets floated out there at different Torah studies and dinner tables about this rock. He says that this rock is Yeshua. Now what he's saying is he's not trying to say that um, Yeshua was like in a disguise out there, in a rock disguise. That's not the point he's trying to make. The point he's trying to make is that, yes, at times we're going to endure sufferings, and we're living now. We live in a wilderness. There's times where spiritually we're starving and spiritually we're thirsty. And he's trying to tell us you're not alone in this, that Yeshua is there. He's got that water, um, that, that living water for you, and he's that rock. So he's just trying to encourage people, um, even though we're living in the midst of a wilderness. And you can tell because continuing, if you read, he says, now these things took place as uh, prefigurative historical events, warning us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did. See, this is a warning for living for today. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were, or, or as the Tanakh puts it, they sat down to eat and drink, then got up to indulge in revelry. And let us not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, with the consequences of 23,000 dying in a single day. And not let us put Messiah to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble, don't complain, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the uh, destroying angel. Do not grumble. Seems odd. Grumbling's almost equated with sexual immorality and questioning, putting God to the test. It's like, geez, grumbling, complaining, doesn't seem like that big of a deal, does it? But it shows what's in your heart. Matthew 12, 34 says, From out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so grumbling and complaining shows people what is flowing from within you, what's flowing out. We should have right living water flowing out from us, not um, grumbling and complaining. If we are on a wilderness journey, all of us feel like that at times. At times, life feels pretty good. At other times... It feels like a desert, and our mouths are parched, and we feel tired and alone and frustrated and angry. And that's okay. We, human, we're going to have these feelings. But we need to be sure that we seek him, our rock, that Yeshua tells us to come to him. He's that source of living water. 
He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Streams of living water should flow from within us. It's difficult. I know it's difficult, especially in the midst, if you watch the news and pay attention to society. It's very tough sometimes not to just want to <laughs> crawl into like a corner and just cover your eyes and plug your ears. It's just so easy to get angry and frustrated with the way the world is. But we need to focus on love and focus on um, that living water. Difficult. whole mindset switch. You got to, even for the wicked people, we should love them, be nice to them, because that's what Yeshua tells us to do. Luke 6.35, he tells us, love your enemies and do good, land expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. I mean, the bar's set high. I struggled as much as all of you guys do to hit it. But we should just try and do a little less grumbling about our situation. I could work on that at times. And we should uh, show love to everyone that's around us because that shows what's flowing from within us. We stay in his word. Um, we meditate on his Torah day and night. Makes things a lot easier. I pray that uh, his spirit would work within us, um, strengthen us, encourage us, helping us to respond to life circumstances and everyone with peace and grace. And may the living water flow from within us, proving ourselves to be true Talmudim <clears throat> of our master. Shabbat Shalom.